Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast all about the television series Lost. I'm Kevin. He has been. Ben, last time we recorded, it was cold and rainy, and yet again, it is cold and rainy. This is yeah, not good. Doesn't seem like much has changed. I think maybe we get these one-hour windows long enough for me to mow my lawn, and that's about it. Maybe it's a sign. Maybe it's an omen of sorts. Well, I mean, you know, if we were on the island, there would just be nothing but bad things happening for the last two, three weeks at a time because, you know, bad things happen when it rains. Right. Feels like, though, there hasn't been too much rain on the island, thankfully. Yeah. That does not mean bad things aren't happening. (laughs) That's true. There's a lot happening. I mean, last couple episodes, I mean, we we talked about how enthusiastic we were to get into season four and I think even with with this week's episodes, I kind of felt the sense of how the accelerated pace of season four has affected things. And I would say that even an episode that might have just been mediocre or even kind of blah in another season still has more meat to it because everything's just moving faster. Right. Yeah. I mean, last week was one of our most dense and I think our longest episode with the exception of the the season one finale, which is a three episode right. uh, one. So, yeah, super, yeah. super dense. Lots of new characters, whole new dynamic to the show. Yeah. And we're rolling on here into, into season four. Yeah, let's jump in. OK, so we're on episode three of season four, The Economist, written by Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz. This is day 92 on the island. Uh, the previously on mentions of the survivors splitting into two groups, one led by Jack and one by Locke. And Daniel Faraday and his team have landed on the island with the mission of finding Ben Linus. That was kind of the big reveal to take us out of episode two. Why are these people here? We now have these flash forwards here. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start the episode with our flash forward here, kind of condensed into one, because honestly, with the exception of the last scene, which I'll wait to to the end of the episode, not much meat to this. Kind of a letdown after the the first two episodes, to be honest with you, the the flashback that is, the flash forward rather. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, um, I mean, I, I for the most part, I agree with you. I would say probably the first and the last scene are, are really, really the key ones. Going into this, when the show was airing, the producers had had teased the audience a bit, and they had said that uh, the endings to episodes three and four, the ones that we're doing tonight, would be two of the biggest shock twist endings in the history of Lost. And so we'll have to see how how those stack up. But as far as you're you're right, sort of the middle the middle section of the flash forward, yeah, you can probably burn right through it pretty quickly. Sure. So let's talk about it. So this is a Saeed flash forward, and we find out that Saeed is one of the Oceanic Six. So we know that the Oceanic Six consists so far of Jack Hurley. We presumed Kate given the end of season three, but that's confirmed in your episode. Yeah. And Saeed. So we know four of the six with certainty. Yeah, and they don't waste any time getting to it in this. No, no, no tricks or any, no papaya uh, mountains or anything like that. Well, there is a little bit of a trick. It starts with him with an old man on a golf course, and you think, you know, Saeed got this huge settlement from the Oceanic Airlines, and he's living the life of a rich guy on this private golf course with somebody else, but that doesn't really strike us as a Saeed we know and love. Right, yeah. So it turns out he is a mercenary working for an unknown boss. He's got this list of people he is killing. And this person he is ending up playing golf with is someone to kill, kills him, shoots him dead on the golf course. And that's how we end the first flash forward of this one. So this is, this is more used to the Saeed Jarrah we're, we're familiar with. It's a pretty clever place, place to murder somebody. Actually, if, if it's these guys were saying that they're paying a huge amount of money to play on this golf course, that's like extremely isolated. So just uh, capping somebody and then walking away to the next hole and, Oh, I never do that guy. 
Right. So his next mark is in Berlin. He enters a German restaurant. The way he's trying to get to this person is by striking up a conversation with a woman named Elsa, who is the personal shopper for her boss, who is an economist, she says. Uh, a cute little insight is uh, when when she asks, what is your occupation? He says, well, I'm a headhunter. There's like a pregnant pause. And he says, I'm a corporate recruiter, <laughs> uh, which I really liked. Yeah. So, there, so there's some flirtatious vibes. They end up going on a date we don't see later tonight. But Said makes a, a phone call to his unknown boss saying that he has uh, made contact. We, we jump forward ahead. Now they're having multiple dates. They're going to the opera. It's their fifth date. So things are going well between Elsa and Said. To the point where we see them in bed one morning. Elsa tells Saeed that she doesn't like the secrecy that he has. She knows she doesn't like talking about his work, but uh, she just wants to know more about him because she loves him. And at the same time, her beeper goes off and it's her boss. And this is when Saeed decides to come clean because he too has caught some feelings for Elsa. Mm -hmm. And he tells Elsa that she has to leave Berlin. He says that she can't be around to answer questions when her employer goes missing. And Elsa puts it together pretty quickly, suspiciously quickly that Saeed used her to get to her boss. Right. Um, and she ends up pulling out a gun and shooting Saeed in the shoulder. And she gets on the phone and has a conversation leading us to believe that she was in on it. She had some idea of who Saeed was. She has this conversation that's, uh, that's translated because she's speaking in you know German. Saeed baits her into coming over to him, grabs a gun out of her nearby jacket and shoots her dead. And Saeed has to cry over her dead body as he, uh, rubs this silver bracelet on her wrist, which that silver bracelet has some importance in the main Island story. I have to say this last scene with, with, uh, with Saeed crying over her felt a little cheesy, a little heavy handed for Saeed. But part of me noticed that this episode happened to air on Valentine's day. Now I don't, now, now I don't want to say that the writers were plenty aware of this and wrote this particularly for this episode. However, there is a part of me that thinks, hmm, you know, that's, that's pretty coincidental to just be a coincidence. And there's a now, I can't, I can't remember what was going on in my life uh, in that particular year, but I have no shame in admitting that even if I had been dating somebody at the time, I probably would have said, honey, tonight lost is airing. <laughs> that's just where my priorities are as a human. And anybody who's going to be with me would just have to understand that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't remember that it was Valentine's Day when this aired. <laughs> that reminds me, my brother, when he was in college, he was a huge Veronica Mars fan. Mm -hmm. And the night of his 21st birthday was also the season two premiere of the show. Um, and my brother's pretty young for his class. So all of his friends were 21 before him, essentially. So they were like, oh, finally, you're turning 21. We got to go out. We got to, you know, get you drinks, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, all right, that's all fine and well but we have to wait until 10 because I have to watch the season two premiere of Veronica Mars. So uh, it's understandable where you're coming from. The world. Well, I'll, I'll do you one better than both of the examples that we just gave old friend of mine named Megan. She put her honeymoon on hold to join us for the series finale in 2010. That's amazing. That's the big one. <laughs> they got, they got married the same weekend I went to their wedding on Saturday because the series finale aired on a Sunday. It was a special night in time. I went to their wedding on a Saturday. The next day was the big lost series finale party that I, I put on and she was there for it. And then they went for their honeymoon after that. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. All right, now uh, I have some questions about Elsa, Kevin, that maybe you can help me with because this was your episode. First of all, what the hell is it with these jobs that people have where like, oh, I get a beeper page twice a year and that's what that's my job. 
It sounds more like the kind of people that are on House Hunters that say like they paint with Crayola, Crayola crayons and their budget for a house is $3 million. That's awfully convenient for the story too, I guess, because both of them have all this time to do nothing in, exactly. in the middle of Germany. Did you see her betrayal coming? Did you kind of predict that or or was that a surprise? No, I did not see it coming. But you sound kind of ambivalent about it anyway, I think, because this is not your favorite flash forward. In the <laughs> right. It, it's To be honest, it just felt like, I don't want to say predictable, but it was a very by-the-numbers story, which is not what I like about Lost. Mm-hmm. And it felt mm-hmm. so out of the ordinary for Saeed to fall this hard into a relationship and betray his instincts and even potentially screw up his job. I don't yeah. know. It, it just it, might, it just didn't sit well with me. Part of it, I think, it feels that way because it's so accelerated. Because, like, like you said, we jump straight from them meeting each other to like their fifth date, and then you presumably jump even further ahead, you know, after that. And I get, I think, maybe what they're trying to go for is sort of repeating that motif of Saeed as sort of the tragic, you know, Shannon was Shannon died in his arms. Uh, the whole backstory with Nadia. You know, his luck with women seems to be they either end up dead or somehow forever denied to him. I get that that's what they were trying to do and that maybe they're also trying to say, like, well, he's not any happier post-island. And that sort of seems to – that fits – that's on theme because we've had a a Jack flashback – a flash forward where we've seen that he's absolutely miserable off the island. Hurley's not any better off. He's back in the mental institution. And so this, this is on theme with that of this – thing that he's doing is not certainly not making him happy obviously but he seems to be you know continually denied happiness by fate so i like it for that but but it does feel pretty it feels padded you know like it's just not there's not a lot of meat to it sure and i think you and i can speak to the strength of so many of saeed's flashbacks that i was very excited to get a saeed flash forward and just didn't feel like it it had the same effect as those great flashbacks that he's typically a part of yeah so overall, just a letdown, but there is one more flash scene, but I think that is incredibly important to leave to the end. Okay. So we're going to do just that. All right. So we go to the present day on the island where Saeed is praying next to the helicopter. Uh, he's paying attention to Naomi's dead body, covers her face, and he takes off a silver bracelet she has on her wrist, which says, N, I'll always be with you, and the initials RG. Is this something we can reveal that this RG never gets explained? RG never gets explained. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm 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 f- fully uh, happy to t- point out when there are are mysteries that aren't really mysteries. I don't think that RG was ever intended to be anything big. I think it was just meant to, just like the cat in the Saeed flashback, you know, where where he sees the cat of Mikhail's that reminds him of the cat from his past. I think this silver bracelet's just meant to set up the scene with Elsa at the end of the episode. Sure, and I think this is supposed to bring us back to a particular point in Saeed's life from the from the last flash forward scene where things kind of changed for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that bracelet's a reminder. But while this is going on, Miles is trying to talk Jack, Kate, and Juliet to take him to Ben, despite all of their warnings against doing so. Saeed, on the other hand, cuts a deal with Lapidus. He will go retrieve Charlotte from Locke safely if Lapidus will fly him off the island to the freighter, and Lapidus agrees to this. So you got two kind of things going on where Miles wants to go find Ben, 
where Lapidus is concerned about getting Charlotte back safely, and that's what Said is planning on doing. I like how they're already sort of differentiating the agendas of these freighter people. They're not; they don't seem any more unified than any of the other characters on the show. Miles seems very businesslike. We're here to do this. Boom, you know. And and Frank is a little bit more laid back. I guess would be the right word for it. And and Daniel's off his own little world. Yeah, you know, he's definitely in his own little world. <laughs> Additionally, Said thinks they should go get Desmond in case he can sed- shed some light on the situation. Because after all, Naomi had a photo of himself and Penny with her when she landed on the island. So, yeah. so Said tells Jack not to come along on his mission of rescuing Charlotte, given Jack's lack of diplomacy on their last trip, a.k.a. shooting a gun on lock. And thankfully, it did not have any bullets in it. Yeah. Uh, so lack of diplomacy is a very gentle way of putting it. Uh, and something I liked is Miles get is ready to argue with Saeed about coming along to help, but Saeed had intended on bringing Miles with him anyway, so that diffuses the situation. For so I just like that little moment between the two. Yeah, of them. yeah, it was good. Then we go to Locke's crew, who's walking through the jungle, and Sawyer wants to torture Ben so he will tell them who his inside man on the boat is. Locke isn't into that. They come across where the cabin was, but the cabin is there no longer. And Locke is so sure this is where the cabin was, and he doesn't understand what's happening. Locke's definitely flustered by this, but he tries to play it off, especially because Ben correctly surmises that Locke was depending on the cabin to tell him what to do next. And Locke shakes it off, says, you know what? Our plan doesn't change. We're going to head to the barracks. And all these people start speaking up, Hurley, Rousseau, and Sawyer specifically, thinking that Locke should release Charlotte, especially Hurley. He's making all these points about it. But Locke tells Hurley that he's the one who makes the decisions and they're going to keep her a prisoner. What do you think? Why do you think Locke was so indignant about doing so? I think Locke is, I mean, honestly, for all of the uh, psychological manipulation that Ben does in this episode and the next one, I think he's pretty much on point with Locke in the sense that he, Locke doesn't know what to do. He was looking to be guided. And we've seen many other examples of Locke he starts to get a little crazy when he's not being guided. Uh, if you go back to you know him pounding on the door of the hatch, screaming theoretically at the island, like I did you everything you wanted me to do, so why did you do this? And then like him eating the hallucinogen paste for the island to tell him what to do next. <laughs> well, he's not getting that now, and so you know, but now he's got this crew of people that are essentially following him and looking to him to tell them what to do. And he doesn't have that. So I think he gets a little defensive. And then so when somebody else tries to make a decision or argue with something, he, he gets a little defensive on that. But I, I liked, I, I very much liked seeing Hurley step up to him a little bit there. It reminded me of a couple scenes like where, uh, well, just a couple episodes ago where he was, you know, trying to figure out where Charlie was or when, uh, you know, when they were all going to kill others and, uh, Hurley says, I thought the point was to get Walt back, stuff like that. Yeah. That, that's consistent with Hurley and, and the way he looks at these situations. Yeah. I really like the dynamic of, of Locke and, and Hurley in these couple of episodes here. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and I think you're, you're right on the money with what's going on with Locke. Now, one thing I don't get though, is why is everybody so obsessed with knowing the identity of Ben's person on the freighter? I, what I don't get is why they assume that it's someone that they know, like, you know, what if Ben just randomly says, oh, well, his name's Frederick. You know, like, what does that mean to anybody? We've met so many others at this point. I guess I'm, what I'm thinking is, why does everybody automatically assume it's somebody that they know? It seems like a weird question to ask. See, I didn't I didn't necessarily think that they knew who it was. I think that they wanted the name so they could have leverage against him. because So then at a moment's notice, 
they had the phone to call back to the freighter and sort of give Ben up. Ooh, that's a good, I hadn't thought of that. Okay, that could be valuable. All right, point taken. Yeah. It's a, it's blackmail, if you will. There you go. Won't be the last blackmailing scene we'll talk about in this sure. episode either. So we get this Jader bait moment. It's not too bad, but it's definitely Jack and Kate just, uh, you know, flirting up for the audience. And right. this leads to Jack telling Kate she should go with Saeed and Miles because he doesn't trust Locke. And he knows Locke won't do the same thing that he did to Naomi, a.k.a. try to kill her, because Sawyer won't let Locke do that to Kate. Uh, you know, that you get this idea from Kate that she doesn't love that Jack is saying this, but also he's kind of right. He's kind of right. Uh-huh. So she goes with them. And as they are he- all heading off and, and Jack and Lapidus are alone, Lapidus asks him about Saeed, and Jack tells him that he was a torturer in his previous life. <laughs> so that's fun. Yeah. All right, so Saeed and Miles are walking through the jungle, and Saeed tells Miles that the two groups split over their differences and trust over Naomi's crew. Locke didn't trust him. Jack's group did. And he says he'll tell Miles what side he's landed on when he still made a decision. Yeah. This is, again, on brand for Saeed. He takes in all the information. He does a little bit of his own investigating before landing firmly on one side or the other. Well, and that's the thing is that that not everybody who stayed with Jack – it's just like, you know, sunshine and rainbows on board with their saviors from the freighter. They're still suspicious. They're just not suspicious to the point of, you know, like giving it up and saying, now we're, we're camping, we're, you know, digging a trench and camping on the island. We're not going anywhere like Locke is. I mean, Juliet's the same way. It was, a, it was a couple episodes ago where she was like, well, Ben's crazy or because they're here to do us harm, you know? So mm-hmm. she's still on the fence, too. Right. It's really not necessarily they trust them, but they do want to get off the island. So they want to stick around just in case it works. I don't blame yeah. yeah. So so Daniel, who he sets off in his own world, he borrows the satellite phone for a science experiment. Lapidus just tells him if Minkowski calls to hang up right away. So he makes the call back and he asks for Regina to fire the payload, which is like a rocket. And she says she has their signal and she sends the beacon. She's counting down, letting him know it's getting closer and closer. And when it hit zero and supposedly it hit the island, there's nothing. This whole time, Dan's looking in the air, looking for the rocket. Nothing's coming. He's confused. And Regina tells him, well, my, you know, my coordinates say that the rocket hit. And Daniel comments that that is far more than weird. Yeah. So, so even in that, even when he first got to the island, Dan was making comments about the light not hitting right on the island. So he has some sort of theory going on or he's doing some tests to see uh, what's going on with the island here. And this is the kind of thing that immediately endeared Daniel to the fans, this kind of geeky stuff that he was doing. And it sort of, it teased little things about the island, like, you know, something's wrong with the island in relation to the rest of the world. If this, uh, did the rocket disappear? What happened to it? And all his little comments and observations, uh, I think. And then just, of course, delivered perfectly by Jeremy Davies made Daniel a favorite from pretty much the minute he showed up on screen. Yeah. It gives you just something to sink your teeth into a little yeah, bit with, yeah. the, with the Island itself. Cause it doesn't feel like they talk a ton about the properties of the Island so much anymore. Yeah. And it, and it's, it, it's hard when you don't have, you know, anybody who's a, you don't really have a scientist on the Island and you also don't have like any technical, technical equipment. But now here comes Daniel and he's a scientist and he's got technical equipment so they can start spouting some of this techno babble and sort of putting more depth into 
you know, what is this island and what's going on with it? How's it different from like a normal place? Right. So I, I, I like that they have some, this curious scientist testing out all this stuff. Yeah. What else is he going to do while they're yeah. waiting for this going on? <laughs> uh, so then we get Saeed, Kate and Miles arriving at the barracks. They hear a muffled noise in a house and find Hurley gagged and tied up in a closet. He says that the rest of his group left him and he mentions that he heard them talking about going to Ben's house. And so they head off to Ben's house. Uh, but before that, we go back to Jack and Lapidus, where Jack asks Lapidus if the Sox really won the series. So if you remember, it was last season where Ben trotted out the television and showed him the Red Sox winning the World Series back in 2004. Yeah. I guess for some reason he thinks this video still may be doctored. I guess if you're a lifelong Red Sox fan and you feel they're cursed, I guess you need further validity. <laughs> and the, the great thing is Lapidus is a Yankees fan and says, don't even get me started. Yeah, that's a great moment. But in the, but in the meantime, the payload finally then appears. Daniel opens up the rocket and checks a clock that was placed inside the rocket. Uh, and he also checks the same clock that was placed in the tripod. And they're 31 minutes and 18 seconds apart. And Daniel says that is not good. But he doesn't really elaborate further on why that is not good. And we don't get to hear any more of it because at that time, Juliet then arrives back with Desmond, who is happy to see the helicopter. Yeah. So, so what were the theories or what were people thinking with this whole 31 minutes, 18 seconds apart thing? Well, I think when you combine this with something that ha comes up later in this episode, the whole thing about having to follow a specific bearing, that harkens back to when Ben told Michael to follow a bearing of 325 um, and that basically that there's something going on that the island is somehow separated from the rest of the world by more than just pure geography, you know, like, yeah, then you go back to, you know, Desmond sailed around for two weeks and ended up back on the island. Like he, you know, he's a experienced sailor and somehow couldn't get away from it. Stuff like that. You know, I, I think it just ends, it all lends to the larger picture of, the island not being like, uh, you know, completely connected to the rest of the world or somehow different. Um, I don't know that there was anything more specific than that. I think people were, were excited to be getting some more, um, I guess some more scientific data on the island. Like there's this weird, you know, time differential happening, you know, what's going on with that. Uh, it just, it just, uh, it just brought a new perspective to the things that we've already been wondering about. Totally. And yeah, we'll talk about that bearing here in a second. But in the yeah. meantime, Saeed's crew is investigating Ben's house. They're all in different rooms. And Saeed discovers a secret passage in Ben's bedroom behind a bookcase that leads to a closet and a desk. Now, you know, the closet just has some clothes and stuff. You don't think too much of it. But the desk is filled with all different currencies from all different countries and passports from all over the world. And Saeed opens up one and it's a picture of Ben, but it is not the name Ben Linus. So Ben just has all these different passports with presumably all different identities and all these different currencies just ready to go. Yeah. Very curious. Yeah. And we're getting a very different picture of Ben Linus than we did last season. You know, last season, the emphasis was on, you know, I've, I've lived on this island my entire life. I was born here, which of course we know was a lie, but uh, you know, you just, you, you're now seeing, uh, that that he is somehow a world traveler, uh, according to what we're seeing here. Yeah, it's hard to make what that's all about. Yeah. But we know they can get off the island, so maybe that has something to do with it. Right. So Sawyer appears in the bedroom that Kate is in, 
He, he shushes her, but of course, Kate immediately yells for Saeed. But as it turns <laughs> out, Hurley baited all of them into a trap. Locke, Sawyer, and Rousseau are now all in the house with guns. They put Saeed uh, in the same bill- like billiards game room that because that's where Ben is now. This is the same room that the others kept Kate prisoner in. And now Ben and Saeed are both locked up in there. Right. So uh, now, now not only are the groups split, but they're taking other members of the other group hostage. Well, they, I mean, they do, I guess, take him hostage, but I think uh, there's some, there's some mutual respect in this next conversation between Saeed and Locke. Um, I also think it was funny the whole way that it shook down with Hurley uh, I love the way that he sheepishly walks into the room. He's got like this guilty look on his face uh, when everybody else has got their guns trained on, you know, Kate and Saeed and everything that he's like, sorry, dude. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's kind of like, wow, I was actually a little impressed that Hurley, you know, for as bad as Hurley is about keeping secrets that he was able to pull off a con like that. Mm-hmm. It's like Andy being able to keep the secret that uh, Leslie was pregnant in Parks and Rec. He just yeah. didn't think he could do it. Oh my gosh, we're actually going to have two Parks and Rec references in this episode. <laughs> Are we really? That's I, I got one next episode for you. Well, Ben, you did mention the the Saeed and Locke conversation, but before we can get to that, what would an episode be without some skater moments? Huh? Of course. We had some Jader stuff. You got to get skater. You got to please everybody on Valentine's Day. <laughs> so, of course, Kate is being kept in Ben's bedroom while Sawyer is standing guard. Kate tells Sawyer that she went with Jack because she thinks Jack can get them back home. Sawyer doesn't understand why she even wants to go back home as she'll be prisoner again as soon as she gets there. And Kate wants to know how long Sawyer thinks they can realistically stay on the island and play house. And Sawyer responds, why don't we find out? Pretty sheepishly, too. This is really, I think, the first indication we get that Sawyer's not all that keen about leaving the island. He's not all that keen about leaving the island, and he also is pretty serious about like a long-term thing with Kate. Like this is not just playing around for him. It's not the, it's not the Sawyer that we saw from all of his flashbacks where he was just kind of this, you know, womanizer, different woman in the bed every night type of guy. Mm -hmm. And didn't Ben put some comment in his head? Like, Oh, if we weren't on the Island, there's no way you'd have a chance with someone like Kate, especially against a doctor like Jack. Yeah, that's exactly. That's almost exactly what he said. Yeah. He's basically, yeah, telling him that the island's the only place that he really has power or any any a- appeal to a woman. Yeah, ben is really that silver tongue devil here on the <laughs> island. He's he's quite got the gift. Uh, but either way, we do get the moment where Locke is talking to Saeed, and Saeed asks Locke to give Charlotte to him because, like Locke, he also doesn't trust Charlotte or the rest of his group, and he feels like passing Charlotte off to them gives them the best chance to get to the boat and figure out what this group is really about. Locke says that isn't necessary because Ben has somebody on the boat, but Ben still isn't talking and giving up his source. So really it's kind of for not. Uh, Locke isn't sure why he'd give Saeed Charlotte for nothing in return, but Saeed implies he has something for Locke. So Saeed obviously had some plan in place for going to Locke. He's not stupid. I mean, Saeed's pretty smart. He knew that there had to be something in it for, for Locke to make this transaction happen. Sure, sure. Yeah, that was his I, – I, the implication is that was his idea from the get-go when he comes back and Frank says, you know, you what did he say, you, you cheated? <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. exactly. And and speaking of, we're back now at the chopper with Lapidus where Desmond is grilling Lapidus about Naomi having his picture. And you get the idea that Lapidus knows something, but he's keeping quiet. He's not showing his cards about right. Naomi having a Desmond's picture. But Desmond says he wants on the chopper when it takes off. Yeah. And at that time, Saeed returns with Charlotte, 
that time, Kate decides that she wants to stay with Locke and his group. Right. Um, which Jack is not happy to hear, but that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Lapidus offers the open seat on the chopper to both Daniel and Charlotte, but they both turn it down. But after Daniel turns it down, he kind of quietly takes Lapidus aside and he tells him that he needs to follow the same bearing they used to get on the island to get off of it. And no matter what, you can't stray from that bearing. You have to stay on course. And Daniel's he's quiet, but he's very firm about this. So yeah. like you were saying with the whole timing thing and, and this bearing going on, we're starting to get some ideas about the island being disconnected from the rest of reality. Well, it's like Desmond said, they're caught in a bloody snow globe. <laughs> yes, he, he put it very succinctly uh, when he's several bottles of wine deep. <laughs> um, that final spot ends up going to Naomi. That's Saeed's idea. And I like this too, because we saw, you know, Saeed, the reason he was on Oceanic Flight 815 is because he waited an extra day to respect a dead body. You know, this is something that he has a, a vested interest in is making sure that he respect the dead, make sure they get a proper burial, all this other stuff. So him, yeah, he's giving, big on that. So him giving the spot on the, on the chopper to, to Naomi's dead body is definitely a very sighted move for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that also I, it occurred to me when, when I was watching this, that, uh, Saeed and Desmond are probably the two that are probably more familiar with taking a helicopter ride than anybody else on the island. Cause they're both ex military. The Scots Guard and the Republican Guard. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so really, if, if Lapidus is going to have anybody on there, uh, Saeed and Desmond are not two shabby people to have with them. Yep. Uh, so they take off. The chopper's flying away, and you get this just long shot of Saeed looking down at the beach, at the ocean. Long, long shots on his face. And then we get the final scene, which is, again, a flash forward. Saeed has been shot. He's in a vet's office. And you see this trope in certain shows where somebody has, like, a a doctor on the DL that helps with like the mafia or it's so like, if you get hurt in some sort of a legal situation, you have somebody who's willing to patch right. you up and there's no paper trail in the hospital. So that's what's going on in Saeed, but we don't see the person who's working on him tells him to take his shirt off. And the person asks, is she dead? And Saeed has some tears in his eyes and he says, yes, the person asks why she didn't kill Saeed. And Saeed says it's because she was trying to get information to know both about Saeed's own identity and about him, his boss. And that's when you reveal that the boss is none other than Ben Linus. He's the one who is treating Saeed's wound. And Ben says, why are you crying? Because it hurts or because you were stupid enough to care for her? These people don't deserve our sympathies. Need I remind you what they did the last time you thought with your heart instead of your gun? And Saeed says, you use that to recruit me into killing for you. Ben says, do you want to protect your friends or not, Saeed? I have another name for you. Saeed says, but they know I'm after them now. And Ben says, good. And you get this huge Giacchino down note to end the episode and jump to lost. Right. Well, and they, and they knew that this was going to be a big reveal moment. I mean, going back to what I said earlier, Kevin, would you say that this was one of the more shocking twist endings on, on an episode? I don't know. I don't think it was super shocking. Like it, it's shocking in a way that where they are in the Island. Now you can't imagine how we got to a point where yeah. Saeed would even work for, for Ben. Cause I think he even makes a comment about like, I'd have to, you know, if I'm starting to take orders from, from Ben, then, you know, I've sold my soul, something along those yeah. lines. Yep. That's what, that's what he says. Yep. So, yeah. So, there, so that's actually kind of a, a cute teaser there. Right. Cause I show you how far Saeed's gone, but, but the implication in all this is that when Saeed's taking off on the helicopter, it's almost like the beginning of the, of what's, 
of where Saeed is now off the island. Well, it's, I mean, we know, you know, so chronologically watching the episode from the first scene, we know that he's one of the ones that gets off the island. So it kind of implies that this is exactly what you said, that this is the beginning of his departure from the island. That's the implication. And I think as far as the thing with Ben goes, I mean, for me, the reason that, that for me, that was a huge surprise twist is because I think, you know, going into this season and when you hear about the Oceanic Six and everything, everybody's in this modality of thinking, okay, well, who are the six that get off the island? And we know that for somebody like Ben or somebody else like Juliet or Desmond or some other characters, Rousseau, that for them, they wouldn't be one of the Oceanic Six. They weren't on the flight. I, for me, I had sort of not even considered the possibility that there would be people who got off the island besides some of the plane crash survivors. And then even if you take that leap and say, okay, yeah, maybe some of them do, you also are then thinking about, well, like who who would be the least likely to leave the island? And to me, Ben would want to be would be one of them. And I think this episode does a really good job of sort of teasing that idea where at the midpoint in the episode, you find Saeed, you know, finding these passports and all this foreign money and everything and sort of teasing this idea that, well, there's a whole other side of Ben that we have not seen yet that then leaves the pathway open for that shock twist ending that, yeah, he's off the island uh, and he's working with Saeed. I, I, I do put this personally as one of the biggest twist endings of the series. And, and I, I loved how it was executed uh, as well, because of like, just again, with that, with that crash to lost ending that you said, you mentioned yourself, I, I was, that was one of those holy shit moments for me. I, I dug it big time. That's a really good point. I guess I didn't even think about how dead set Ben was on staying on the Island. And now here he is off of it and running this behind the scenes murder system. Right. Yeah. And it's another one of these situations where we've got, you know, more questions being asked and now you've even got, you know, another layer to the flash forwards and part of the flash forwards we've already talked about is figuring out like a timeline for this. So at some point, something happens to Saeed that leads him to get in league with Ben. We haven't seen that yet. So that's something that's got to be revealed. You know, he, he refers to this, you know, you thought with your heart instead of your gun, that sort of thing. And so just like Jack, where we're spending this season watching how Jack gets from, you know, the guy who, you know, looks a little disheveled, but is still working at the hospital to the train wreck of a human being that we see at the end of season three. Mm. So I, it just adds so much more. And I just was totally on board with this. Right. As much as I didn't love the most of the flashback, this final scene is pretty awesome. Yeah, it really is. Uh, what'd you think of the episode overall? Uh, I would probably go along with you and say the flash, the flash forward was mostly lackluster, except for the first and last scenes. And then I would say that the stuff on the island was good. Move the story forward again, just uh, even in an episode like this with some disappointing elements, some, some, you know, maybe elements that weren't so great. There's still so much going on in this accelerated pace of a season that it feels, it feels like a lot happens just in that 40 some minutes. So I enjoyed it. It does. Yeah, I agree. I enjoyed it too. It does feel like they're almost because of that accelerated pace, it almost forces them to put, the mystery stuff and the character stuff together and make it satisfactory on both ends. Cause a lot of times in the other seasons, you might get a very 
mythos heavy episode that kind of lacks in the character department or vice versa. Right. And I think this did a good job balancing them because you have a lot of really good character moments. And then you have Faraday tinkering with the island and doing his own experiments to kind of get you your get you your head scratching. Yeah. Wonder what's going on here. For sure. One other thing I just want to mention is that the woman who played Elsa is Thecla Rutten. The only thing I had, I really knew of her was she was in the movie In Bruges, which was a Colin Farrell movie that I actually really enjoyed. Huh, okay. uh, so that's a pretty good one. I know she's in a, she's in a couple other things, uh, but that's the that's the big one that I knew her from. What it looks like from what I looked at, I looked her up, and I think she's uh, primarily a Dutch actress. So right. she's crossed over into American movies a couple times. So interesting, kind of out there pick. You know, it's I guess she just auditioned like everybody else for the role. But, you know, somebody, a face you don't see and say, oh, it's that that person from that other thing. Right. Uh, she's not a, a Julie Bowen or, a, you know, anything like that. So. No, not at all. So anything else you want to say about the episode before we go to superlatives? I think we covered it. I mean, I, I think that the economist himself is a bit of a MacGuffin, you know, that uh, as soon as this episode aired, there was wild speculation about who the economist was. And I think the more important takeaway from the episode is that he is a person on a list of, of people to be killed and not necessarily that his identity in particular is important. Sure. So going forward, I would say you might not want to be holding on too tight to this idea of finding out who the economist is, but just know that this is a person who is part of a larger network that Said and Ben are now assassinating and, and what, what the network is and what that, what the implications are there. Or at least Saeed's doing the assassinating. Well, yeah, Saeed's doing the assassinating. He's the one getting his hands dirty. <laughs> He's doing what he does best while Ben does what he does best, I guess. That's right. All right, quote of the episode, Ben. My quote of the episode, and I we might have the same one because every now and then I suspect that you might have deliberately you know, skipped over a particular quote. Uh, this would be Sawyer when they are talking about how to get information out of Ben. And he says, why don't we take a gun, point it at his big toe, and send that little piggy to market? <laughs> the most brazen and hilarious way to refer to torturing somebody by shooting their toes off. Yeah, not only does Sawyer want to torture it, he wants to do it in a very particular way. He's given great thought to how to torture him best. <laughs> yeah. um, surprisingly, that is not my quote. And I actually have two different quotes for this episode. Okay. Uh, it's, it's two exchanges. This one I kind of like because I think it was almost like a – Lost writers taking the piss out of themselves when Kate approaches Jack after Jack was told by Saeed not to come on the mission. She says, kind of sucks, huh? Being told you can't go on a mission. Now you know what it's like to be me. And Jack says, so should I just wait 20 minutes and go anyway? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I thought that was a really funny wink, wink to themselves. And then I liked in the house. This is when Miles is trying to ask Hurley, where did uh, everybody else in his group go? He says, where did they go, Tubby? And Hurley says, oh, awesome. The ship sent another Sawyer. <laughs> Which they kind of did. Yeah, that's Miles for you. <laughs> I guess in the sarcasm department, there's definitely similarities in the way that they uh, that they interact with others. I mean, I found myself looking at this and, and when we have this section for Sawyer nick nicknames, almost feeling like, we should have a section for great miles lines, but I guess our <laughs> quote covers that. I, I say we make a declaration right here, Kevin, that 
if we have a quote of the episode, but there's also a really great Miles line that we can grant ourselves that as well. Okay, almost a separate category for yeah. the Miles quote for the episode. It's like a freebie. We can have another great quote, but then also here's our Miles quote that we All love right, from great. the episode. So, th- so there's our own amnesty we're giving ourselves. <laughs> How about your asshole, or I'm sorry, your scene of the episode? Scene of the episode. Well, like I usually say, it's it's sometimes the the twist endings on lost are so good that they overshadow everything else for me this is an episode like that but if i had to pick another scene i would probably pick the whole scene with daniel and the payload just because of the the curiosity that it sparked in fans and the and the the way it uh just sort of opened your mind up to more possibilities of of how this island is kind of so magical and different uh, i really enjoyed that scene what about you well, you stole my real scene and my backup scene. Oh, awesome. So. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, hey, that's that's fine. Great minds and all. Yeah. Um, how about your asshole idiot? Uh, why don't you do asshole idiot first in case I steal yours? I feel like I really didn't have one for this episode. Yeah? Huh. Okay, let me see. I have... Yeah, you're right, because this was hard. Uh, if anybody, it would be Saeed for falling for Hurley as bait. But then again, like I said, I Hurley did a really good job, especially for Hurley. So I guess maybe Saeed was thinking, you know, if Hurley doesn't give this up right away, that he must be telling the truth. So I don't know. And, and how wise of Locke and his group to pick Hurley of all people to be the bait. Yeah, seriously. Because he's the one who's most gullible, but also most likable. And the one you don't expect to be in on a, a who would, um, what's the word I'm looking for? For. he would not want to participate in and yeah. something like this yeah um, well he, and he takes he's kind of disarming in terms of your defenses yep yeah yep. so in, in a way it's it's less of saeed falling forth than just uh hurley got better i suppose yeah maybe so <laughs> so for the numbers they're both the numbers 16 and 23 appear on uh the the digital clock from the rocket he has during his um yep. his experiment it's it's a uh, three it's uh, three sixteen and twenty three seconds. If you add those numbers up, uh, you get the number forty two. Interestingly enough, and if you use the twenty four hour format, like military time, it would actually be fifteen sixteen twenty three. And then uh, when Saeed and Elsa meet in the cafe for the first time, Elsa says they can meet him at eight p.m. that night. And then one I missed that was on uh, Lostpedia was that. Uh, in that same cafe, there's a picture on the wall showing a beer commercial for 1516 Rhine. And the German purity law for beer was declared on April 23rd, 1516 or 423-1516. Yes. Now, do you know anything about the German beer purity law? Oh, yeah, Ben. I know so much about the German hey, purity law. I, I mean, you and I well, – hey, listen. You and I have been to – beer fests together and and uh we're we're both uh known to indulge in some craft brews every now and then i thought maybe you might yeah no i'm i am not familiar whatsoever are you um only only in a very general sense just that it's uh it's it's something called reinheitsgebot i'm looking at the page on wikipedia right now because i have no idea how to pronounce it um but i at least i at least heard of it before it was basically uh, it was actually sort of established by the church, the Holy Roman Empire, to limit the di- what different ingredients are allowed in beer. Um, so, you know, it's it's part of the history of beer, I guess. But uh, 
it's been a part of German history for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it has like a long, a pretty long history. But I, I think it's if you're if you're a beer enthusiast at all, it's a fun thing to read about because um, you know German beer is known throughout the world as being really great beer. So, um, but no, I, that's no indictment for not knowing what it was. I, I have only heard of it a couple times, but. Mm. Um, well, I'll tell you what it does. It does make me want to look it up. So I'll have to get, do so do a little additional reading after this. Uh, but in the meantime, we have one Sawyer nickname where he calls yeah. Ben Gizmo, an obvious Gremlins reference. I think he's referencing Ben's large eyes, similar eyes. To, to the Gremlins yeah. in the movies. Yeah, um, that just leaves books and music. All right, so we do have a few things here. For music, uh, we have one track from the season four Lost soundtrack. It's called Lost Away or Is It? And the track takes place when Saeed and Desmond are getting on the helicopter. And then it uh, the last few seconds of it cut into the very last uh, flash forward with uh, uh, the that ends with the Ben reveal. I think the music is appropriately epic uh, with uh, you and I already talked about the sort of significance of Saeed on the helicopter and, you know, the way he was looking, but also what it sort of represented as far as his, the beginning of his departure from the island. And then uh, ultimately, you know, sort of plays into that. It, it's one of those tracks that starts very epic like that and then kind of moves downward into the creepy scene with Ben. So I like that track quite a bit. Uh, there's one incidental song. It is called If You Stayed Over by a British musician named Fink. And it is playing in Elsa's apartment when uh, she's one of the scenes where she's getting ready and uh, Saeed's over. Um, so uh, you can add that to your collection if you're collecting incidental songs uh, for Lost. As far as books goes, there's not a direct reference to a book, like a physical book on the screen at any point. However, on Ben's passport, one of the names is Dean Moriarty. That happens to be the name of the main character on in, in the book On the Road by Jack Kerouac, uh, which is a pretty famous book, part of the canon of, of American literature. And then, of course, Moriarty is also a villain in Sherlock Holmes. Um, I think people are a lot more familiar with that. So kind of a two-part reference. Yeah, Kerouac's a staple for either AP English or early college literature courses. Yeah, yeah so. that's that's when I read it. <laughs> Same here. So that's episode three. I'm ready to get into episode four if you are, Ben, on a episode I don't think I still understand what the title's about. Yeah, I have a section about that. Okay. <laughs> well, before we get into that, this episode was, because I always talk about the writers, this episode was written by Elizabeth Sarnoff, someone we've heard about many times, but is the first episode written by Gregory Nations. But it's not the first thing Gregory Nations has done with Lost, as he is the creator, and I have to imagine that also means he is the curator of the Lost series Bible. Now, this is something we've talked about in past episodes where the Lost series Bible is sort of like the truths of the show, the concrete laws of Lost and what can go on and making sure there's continuity. And so if anybody had questions or can we do this, can we do that? You, you got to go to the Bible, see what that has to say. And so Gregory Nations get a chance to actually write an episode here. I think he only writes two more. I think he just gets one per season for the remaining three seasons here. But uh, when I saw a new writer, I, of course, had to look to what he did. And it doesn't seem like he did too much work before Lost. But uh, being the creator of the Lost series Bible is definitely something noteworthy. I think he was also the like kind of their main continuity guy. Like if they had questions about the show, wasn't he the guy who kept track of where all the guns were? 
I think you had mentioned that before. Yeah, yes. like like back back before everybody in, in his and his brother had an AK forty seven strapped to his back, uh, like where we are now with the show when there were just you know four handguns and a and, and an extra one that was empty uh, in season one. Uh, they had to keep track of like how many bullets had been shot, who was currently holding them, all that stuff. Uh, and so to me him not writing episodes actually made sense because you want someone who's just watching the exact same thing the fans are to point out continuity errors or ask questions of things that may not make sense. Not to mention he can point to the Bible and say, nope, can't do this. Remember, we said here, this, this, and the other. Uh, because I can see a continuity person if he's in the writer's room or doing all these other things. You can get confused easily. Did I watch this or was this just mentioned in the writer's room and it didn't make the screen? I didn't even think twice about him not being a writer, but then I saw it and I thought, okay, I guess they're, they're giving him a crack at it. Also, just quick aside, uh, he is also the inspiration for the last name of the character of Randy Nations, mm, okay. who is the guy who uh, you know is the bane of John Locke's existence at the box company and the, <laughs> the bane of Hurley's existence at Mr. Cluck's Chicken Shack and so on. Doesn't uh, speak do. too strongly of Gregory Nations, does right, it? Right, right. They threw that name on the character, and I'm like, mm, I don't know if that's a privilege I'd want or not. <laughs> a harmless rib, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. All right, but the episode itself. Yes. All right, so season four, episode four, Eggtown, days number 93 and 94 on the island. And amazingly, there is no recap in this episode. Every now and then they have one that doesn't have a recap, and I would love if somebody ever offered me the explanation of when that choice was made, uh, because certainly there are just as many things in this episode as any other where having some knowledge of what has gone on before would be helpful, but they don't do a recap for this one. Maybe it's a time thing. I don't know, but... I'm actually going to start with the island stuff and finish with the flash forward there, uh, if that's all right with you, Kevin. We have two sections of the island stuff, a, a smaller section and a larger section, so we'll get the smaller one done first. So we start with Sun and Jin uh, talking about where they're going to live. You know, Everybody on the uh, in the beach camp is sort of planning as if rescue is imminent. Jin wants to live in the United States, but Sun wants to raise her baby at home in Korea. Jack returns from the helicopter landing point with Juliet, uh, introduces Daniel and Charlotte to everybody, tells everybody that Charlotte and Daniel can help get them off the island. Uh, of course, we get this little side sheepish look from Daniel, which kind of keeps us always nervously on edge of, is this thing really going to happen? But I do think, uh, Kevin, I like that they can still have these little character moments, like the one with Sun and Jin, even with the accelerated pace of the show. And I think that's kind of what the early part of season three was missing that people that people missed and that maybe they, the writers took that to heart a little bit. Yeah, because it, it was a brief scene, but it was definitely an impactful one. Well, and, and it's just to it's just to remind us those characters are there, you know. Sure, because they got little to no play in the first you know three episodes of the season until this point. Right. Right. Yeah. Reminder that we'll get back to them. They are super important. You know, as I always say, Sun and Jin are the heart of Lost, but uh so he cut to sometimes later. Jack is, he's got this uh, satellite phone and he still can't get in, in contact with the freighter. And he's talking with Sun and Juliet about this. And they kind of express concern that Locke might be right after all. Sun is asking, you know, why Kate would have gone with Locke. I guess there's a little indication that Sun feels like that maybe Kate's opinion is valuable. And if Kate is not feeling very trusting of these people, that maybe they shouldn't be. 
And then we finish off there, our beach stuff that night with Daniel and Charlotte. Uh, and I thought it was a little funny too. I thought it was kind of cute with the, uh, the, the scene I just mentioned, actually, the, the, with the son and, and Juliet and Jack. Uh, if you look in the background, you can see Charlotte and Daniel getting food from the shelves, which is you know, the combination of island food and leftover Dharma food. And it's kind of like, well, they didn't waste any time integrating themselves into the beach camp. I mean, they got to be hungry. It doesn't look like they took any food on that. I'm sure they are. Yeah. It's just such a motley crew of people now. You've got like an other Juliet. You've got two freighter people. And then you've got all these island survivors. But Daniel and Charlotte are on the beach together at night. They're sitting at a table. And what Charlotte's doing is she's testing Daniel's memory by having him repeat back. uh, Like she'll show him three cards, flip them over. And then uh, he has to repeat what the cards are. Uh, now this, you know, sounds like a pretty simple thing. He just looked at them, but uh, he only gets two out of three right. So this is kind of important. It gives us another uh, aspect of Daniel to sort of wonder about. So you have this guy who's a little quirky, a little kooky. Seems like he's almost one of those sort of uh, what do they call him? A, I guess a mad scientist or something like that. A little bit, a little bit harebrained, wacky, Doc Brown type. But there's also something more going on there in that he he actually you know, has some significant memory issues or something. This was a scene that definitely got me interested even more in the character than I was already. Yeah, same, because even if he is a little bit of a kooky type, there's something very charming about him, too. Oh, for sure, for sure. Jack and Juliet confront them about not being able to reach the boat with the satellite phone, and Charlotte says there's an emergency channel, and they tell her to call it and put it on speaker. You know, Jack is big at uh, about the putting things on speaker at this point. Uh, but I also really love Juliet. Just, just uh, she said, like Charlotte's like, well, we have an emergency number, and Juliet just leans down and says, "This is an emergency." Yeah, <laughs> like that. Uh, and then Regina, the woman we're used to hearing, uh, answers. Um, she's confused why they're using that that number, and uh, Daniel says, "Well, they're they're concerned about their friends. You know, if they are the is." Uh, is the helicopter there yet? And she says, no, there's no helicopter here. You know, there's, we thought the, we thought the helicopter was still on the Island. So it's not too far of a stretch that you can sort of combine this with what we saw with the payload situation in the last episode to have a little bit of a clue what might be going on here. So what were, what were your thoughts, Kevin, when you saw this? Well, you know, if there's the major time difference or things aren't, aren't the way they are, as he said, maybe Lapidus got off of the trajectory that, Daniel warned him to stay on. Yeah, something's up with the relationship of time between the island and the outside world. So um, this is a pretty good indicator of that. So that's all we've got on the uh, beach camp side of the island. The majority of our of our island uh, screen time is uh, in the barracks, now becoming uh, Lock Lockville because he definitely fancies himself the dictator here. We start with a scene where he uh, takes Ben some breakfast. He's now keeping Ben in a cell under the house that he's staying in, which is actually the same cell. I think it looks to me, Kevin, like it was the same cell that Anthony Cooper was kept in. Yeah, that's that's exactly where it was, I believe. Yeah. So Ben starts on his usual mind games with John for not knowing what to do next. And Locke says, oh, you know, you're not going to get to me. But then he kind of immediately proves that wrong because he (laughs) – Yanks his breakfast away from Ben and then uh, leaves. And on his way back down the hall, he slams it in fury against the wall. Almost the same kind of thing of like throwing the dishes around in the in the Swan Station a couple seasons ago. Uh, one funny thing about this, Kevin, uh, to go back and look for, if you watch carefully, 
when John slams the tray against the wall, the wall vibrates a little bit, <laughs> which sort of gives away the fact that it's a sound stage and not an actual concrete wall in a basement. Right. That's kind of funny. Uh, that is funny. I did notice, I think I've noticed something about it. It was off when I'm watching it, but yeah, I love that after all this time, cause it's been gosh, nearly two seasons, you know, yeah. and yeah. still Ben can get to get to under Locke's skin. Locke still has a, a pretty fragile ego. Yeah. He knows how to push Locke's buttons. That's for sure. So we also, also in the barracks or new Otherton or whatever you want to call it, uh, Sawyer is hanging out with Kate and Claire on the front porch of one of the barracks. So uh, it seems like the arrangements that have been worked out are that Sawyer and Hurley have uh, one house, Kate and Claire have another. Now we also know that there are other plane crash survivors who sort of the, the no-name background randos that are with them. We don't get to see any of those folks here, but presumably they's all, they've all picked out houses for themselves as well. But Kate and Claire are roommates. Sawyer and Hurley are roommates. Sounds like a sitcom. Um, I was thinking, where's the where's the odd couple thing? I, I smell a sitcom. Yeah. Claire leaves to get coffee so that Sawyer and Kate can talk, but they end up just kind of arguing. She refuses to move in with them. You know, he's sort of pushing this again, this more serious relationship angle, but she is not going to tell him why she's there. So she's really being closed off with Sawyer. Sawyer thinks it's still about what he said that when she thought that he might that she might be pregnant so we do get a lot of this relationshipy stuff in this episode for sure um this is just the tip of it but so bottom line sawyer and kate are mad at each other again because <laughs> of course they are because of course they are so next thing kate goes to Locke and she wants to see miles uh she goes up to his house Locke refuses says he's not running a democracy you know so you know he gets to call the shots but then she immediately uh, gets an idea how to figure out where Miles is. She sort of cons Hurley into giving up Miles' location. Uh, and he says, you just scooby-dooed me there, didn't you? Which I, thought was kind of <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it's pretty good. So Miles is at the boathouse. She brings him his lunch, which was what Hurley was supposed to do. The burning question she has for Miles is to know what Miles knows about her. And, of course, we're what we're to understand, obviously, is that she's she's trying to figure out if she's going to be in trouble when she gets back, you know, because of who she is, she's a convict and everything, but he doesn't reveal any of this yet. You know, he says, he says that I'll tell you everything I know about you. If you arrange for me to talk to Ben Linus for one minute, well, he says someone, and then she's like, who? And he says, who do you think? I also found it was interesting that he said he's exactly where he wants to be. Do you think that's just because of this thing of wanting to talk to Ben? Who knows? Yeah, so however he ended up there, even though he got traded for Charlotte, that he says he's exactly where he wants to be. So that's kind of interesting. Later, we get a scene with Claire and Kate hanging clothes. You know, this kind of more domesticity stuff going on here. Claire asks Kate to hold Aaron, and Kate reacts about the way I do to babies. I don't know. I, this is a, a me thing. I don't know if it's uh, if you ever feel the same way, but it, do you ever have friends or relatives that ask you to hold their babies? Yes. And and I just, I'm so awkward when that happens. Yeah. I don't like doing it. Neither do I. I mean, uh, for the record, for the, for anybody listening, Kevin and I, neither of us have kids. I am definitely the guy that when somebody says to hold their baby, I like hold them with my arms outstretched, like under their arms, just kind of holding them like, you know, a, a watermelon or something. Right. Yeah. Until you, I, somebody. It's not that I don't like kids. It's that I don't want to drop them. 
Yes. But this, uh, you know, this scene uh, is laying uh, some foundations for stuff that we'll get to in the flash forward, of course. Then Kate visits Sawyer. And I love this, that Sawyer has some Dharma box wine to share (laughs) in the next scene. So that's kind of fun. It's in a box, Um, but it's still pretty good. That's right. He gets to the point where he finally just asks her to come out and say what, you know, that she's trying to use him for something. And Basically, what she wants to do is set up a con with him, and she wants to, quote-unquote, bust Ben out. We know this follows from the conversation with Miles, but this is actually a really good con because it certainly had me fooled. I don't know about you, but when the next scene comes along and Sawyer goes to Locke and basically spills the beans on everything that Kate just said to him, I thought, wow, he's picking sides here and he's siding with Locke, which I could actually kind of believe because of how dodgy and, and weird Kate's being. Yeah, no, it was very well executed. So that fooled me up to that point, you know, uh, and, and he tells him everything and they rush to the boathouse, but Miles is gone. So the con was basically that while Sawyer was doing all of that, Kate brought Miles to Ben instead of vice versa. So it was a con on lock, and it was definitely sort of a sleight of hand on the audience. That worked really well, I thought. Yeah, me too. It was, again, really well executed yeah. and uh, just different from the other cons we've seen in the show. That's what I think made it so right. strong. Yeah. So now we get this conversation with Miles and Ben, and we get some vague hints at things, but it's a, it's a pretty meaty conversation. Basically, you know, Miles said, do you know who I am? Ben says, yes. Do you know who I work for? He says, yes. And he says that, you know, you know what this guy's capable of. He spent a lot of money to get here, but I will lie to him and tell him that you were already dead when I found you in exchange for $3.2 million. Ben starts to kind of bullshit. And then Miles says, I know who you are, what you're capable of. So don't pretend you don't have the money. And he gives him one week to come up with the money. So that's an interesting conversation. So there's this idea that there's this, you know, specific person who's invested a lot of time and resources to find Ben. You also have this idea of, well, we know the freighter's not there to rescue everybody, but they're there for Ben Linus. There's a couple popular theories at the time. Do you remember what you were thinking at the time when when you first watched this, Kevin? I don't remember thinking of the first time, but what really struck me here was, and, and even Ben pointed out, the specificity of $3.2 million. Right. He says, why not 3.3 or 3.4? What's the deal with 3.2? And Miles kind of doesn't answer it. So what, why, that's, why that specifically, you know? Spoiler alert, it's exactly how much it costs for the condo that Miles wants to own in Fort Lauderdale. Wow, okay. Exactly what it costs, $3.2 million. What an exciting answer to that question. <laughs> I think the most popular theory that was going around at the time was that the this uh, unknown, unnamed face person or whatever that would be behind the freighter might have been Alvar Hanso. Hmm, yeah, who okay. Was, who was you know, the guy who funded the Dharma Initiative and that this whole thing might be a revenge slash retake the island for the Dharma Initiative. Hmm. That was a big thing that was going around. But... We won't know that for a while. Kate brings Miles back, or she starts to bring Miles back, but she gets caught by Locke. Locke puts a gun on Miles and then tells Kate to go back to her house. And then later he goes and visit her. Visits her. She voluntarily tells Locke everything that Miles and Ben said to each other. 
Oh, I guess I skipped a thing. I did skip a thing that's important. Miles follows through on what he said he would do. And he tells Kate, yeah, we know exactly who you are. We know that you're wanted for murder and, you know, that you were on your way to be locked up when when the plane crashed. So that's that's a big deal for her because that's weighing into her decision on what she's going to be doing now that there's the potential for them to get rescued. So, you know, so that that was her part of things. That was what she wanted. So she tells Locke what he wants to know. But then she says or he says, you're not welcome here anymore. Kate then goes to Sawyer and he says, wait a minute, he banished you and I unbanish you. Tells her she can stay and that he'll keep her safe. You know, all these very, you know, cute and shipper bait things that uh, the skaters want to hear. And they start making out and then it sort of cuts away. And then the next morning is a scene I actually really like, Kevin. <laughs> Because we finally have somebody in the triangle call the triangle out for what it is. Yes. Just before that, though, we have a quick scene in one of the most badass scenes of Locke ever. <laughs> Locke goes to the boathouse, stuffs a grenade in Miles' mouth, and pulls the pin out. And he tells him <laughs> that he'll eventually question him about the freighter and who he's working for. But until then, he's going to keep his mouth shut. So while Miles is chewing on a grenade, Kate tells Sawyer that as they wake up in bed together, but apparently they didn't have sex according to what Sawyer says. But she says to Sawyer that she's sure she's not pregnant and Sawyer's super happy about that. This is baffling to me because Kate gets all upset. Like, would it be the worst thing in the world if I were? And Kate and Sawyer's like, well, hell yes, it would be. And I'm thinking, did Kate forget that she would die if she got pregnant on this island? Is this like a writing oversight or is she that forgetful? You're, you're thinking too much about this. It's not that she would die on the island. It's the implication that Sawyer wouldn't want to be the father of her child. Right. I mean, well, you're right. I understand that that's what she's going for. But, I mean, I would think it would be, uh, like, great news that she wasn't pregnant. I, I think she's thinking in the grand scheme of life, not in this particular island scenario. Or that she's thinking, like, that – or even maybe that it's just not so much about the whether or not I'm pregnant but Sawyer's reaction to it. Right. Yeah. And not to mention, isn't Sawyer the one who wants to play house with Kate? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So there's a little bit of mixed messages there from Sawyer. Maybe. I don't know. But I guess it's enough that she's decided she's going to go back to the beach. And then here Sawyer says in a moment of clarity that has not been achieved by humankind since Buddha first dis discovered the noble eightfold path says that she'll just get pissed at Jack in a week and come right back to him. And everybody who hates the relationship stuff and loss just goes, yes, thank you for pointing out the obvious. You've basically mapped the relationship triangle of the past three seasons. But yeah. she slaps him and leaves. I wanted to stand up and applaud him. <laughs> so great. I love somebody brings some real talk to the love triangle finally. Mm -hmm. uh, I gotta so, say, yeah. there was definitely Skater and Jader stuff in both these episodes, but I never found any of them to be egregious or, or eye roll worthy. Well, and they didn't overpower either episode, you know, like right. they weren't, it wasn't so extensive that it drowned out everything else going on. So yeah, so that finishes our island stuff. That's where things end up with Kate, I guess, leaving to go back to the other, the other side of the island. So anything about the present day island stuff before we get to the flash forward? No, just a, just a pretty interesting one to sort of further establish the two sides and I got to say, Locke does not come off great in these two episodes. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about him in this one. I, I, I know what you're saying about the Economist episode where he's like, 
he doesn't know what to do. You know, he kind of comes across as weak, and then he definitely has the whole I'm still easy to manipulate by Ben angle. But I think some of the stuff he does is pretty badass. I think the grenade scene at the end is just awesome. That is indeed awesome. I'll give you that. <laughs> All right, so we have a flash forward for this episode, and it is one of Kate's. We open this up with Kate and her lawyer emerging from a car in front of a courthouse. So we get the sense really quickly that we're going to have a courtroom drama for this particular episode of Lost. Kate is on trial for all the crimes that she committed or was charged with before the plane crash, and she pleads not guilty. So she is remanded to custody, and there's a very uh, deliberate scene where they're putting handcuffs on her. And that ties directly back to what Sawyer had just said in the previous episode, uh, where he said, you know, Kate, if you don't think there's, if you think there's anything other than handcuffs waiting for you when you get back, then you don't know how the world works. And so it proves that he was spot on. So she is back in handcuffs and she is in prison. She meets with her lawyer in jail and he says that they should try to bargain, but that the best she can hope for is 15 years. She refuses and says, and he and he says the only other way to win the trial is to make it about character, and he wants, quote, him in the courtroom. And then we get our first big reveal of the episode or of the flash forward. Kate refuses and says she will not let them use her son. So this answers a question from last season, Kevin, of the, the, the very last scene of the flash forward, actually. Do you remember what, what they were arguing about? Can't, I can't remember it now. Okay, so when Kate and Jack are arguing beside the airport and she wants to leave, she says, he's going to be wondering where I am. Mm, Okay. There was a lot of speculation about that. Her having a son was a popular theory. I think the second most popular theory was was that it was Sawyer and that they were still, love triangle bullshit was still going on off the island. Sure. That's what I would have said. <laughs> that would have been your guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and the way this episode all plays out too, you're sort of thinking that when she mentions that it's her baby, you're thinking, oh, Sawyer did get her pregnant perhaps. Right, right. Well, the whole the whole pregnancy issue is on is on the mind of the characters and on the of the audience, uh, you know, since since last season. Um and there were a couple of exchanges in the ser- season finale about that um, and then particularly with this episode. So there's all that conversation going on. So this almost seems like confirmation that, oh, wait, she is pregnant, but we'll get there. Do you think when the producers watch this episode, because we talked a few episodes ago about how the producers kind of uh, under the radar sold the show as being your kind of run of the mill sort of drama type of show. They said, ah, here's the courtroom drama you guys promised us back in the pitch days. (laughs) Well, what I'll say is I think that the writers of the show – probably did look for opportunities within the flashes, whether they be flash forwards or flashbacks to work in some elements that audiences are more familiar with. Like, I think they were all, you have a very talented group of writers that wrote this show and they're all smart enough to be aware of the fact that lost was such a different type of show that anything that they could provide, that could be like an anchor for people for casual viewers to get stuff out of the show, they could. And so a courtroom drama, of course, fits the bill. I mean, you also have, I think it was a pretty, I think it was a very deliberate choice to make a doctor the main character, you know, stuff like that. And then you definitely have your fair share of episodes that deal with like, you know, crime drama when you have characters like Kate and Sawyer and so forth. So, you know, I think they just looked for ways to tie those sort of those tropes into the larger narrative. 
I mean, you know, I'm not in their heads or anything, but that seems like it makes sense to me anyway. So, yeah, so we get a big answer from last season. We know who uh, him is now, and it's referring to that she has she has a son uh, in the future. So we have the trial underway here, and uh, I guess it's a little bit ways into it because Kate's lawyer apologizes to her in advance and then proceeds to call Jack to the stand, Jack, Dr. Jack Shepard, which Kate objects to, and uh, I guess even the prosecutor objects to because it didn't really have anything to do with the crimes that were committed. But we know that the pro- the def- uh, attorney's going for the character angle. That's actually a pretty important scene because when Jack sits down, takes the stand, swears to tell the whole truth, he proceeds to lie his ass off about a whole bunch of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was I felt like this scene really woke me up because I'm listening to him talking. I'm like. This isn't at all what happened on the right. island. Well, it takes us right back to the season three finale. Again, you know, to starting to you know, tie these things together when Jack said he was sick of lying. And so that was another question going into season four is what are they lying about? These handful of people that managed to get off the island, what's the big lie? Well, we hear a lot of them in just the span of a minute or two here. Uh, little ones like the marshal died in the crash. Big ones, like only eight people survived the crash and they landed in the water. Also, he says that Kate saved everyone's lives by administering first aid. And then he even starts to say something that he gets cut off. But he says she tried to save the other two and then he doesn't get to finish his sentence because Kate interrupts him. But that's enough meat to go on for now for you to get his picture of that there have been a carefully constructed series of lies that the oceanic six are putting out there to the world upon their return. But we will learn more about that in the future. For now, Kate tries to end the whole thing, but the prosecutor gets a cross-examination and then we get the dumbest question in the history of television crime drama, which is, I have only one question for you. Do you love the defendant? And what the, the fuck kind of question is that? It's it's shipper bait, obviously. Well, I can see them saying if he loves her, then he's not even a credible witness. Yeah, I don't know, but it's put in such a way that's like like they they're writing it with the expect expectation that jaders are going to lean in with their faces closer to the television, <laughs> their asses off their seats, waiting for the answer. I don't know. It just seemed really obvious to me. Oh sure, it, I mean delivery is everything, right? <laughs> like like the line in the last episode that I love where he said, uh, you know. Oh, so you told I told me I can't go. Should I wait 20 minutes and then go in? I mean, the delivery of that could have changed the whole thing to make Jack seem like an a-hole. But the way right. it's delivered, it was a, a fun, playful thing between yeah, us. Similarly, yeah. the way she asked this question and the way that it's that's put into, I think you're right. It is more of the jader bait than it is the actual her trying to outsmart Kate's lawyer and throwing him off as an uncredible witness. And then, so this is my, my reference. I promised you, Kevin, it reminded me of the parks and rec episode where Leslie, I believe she arranges for a deposition or something so that Ben has to say under oath that he loves her. Oh no, no, no. It was, uh, Oh, it was the guy that Justin Thoreau played in season two. Wasn't it? Yeah. That she had a good time at, uh, on their date. That's right. He, okay. There's, there is, there's some scene later where, where Ben has to say something in like a court or something about what, how he feels about Leslie. But no, there is, that's right. I got it wrong. That's the episode where, yes, he has to say that he had a good time at her party. Correct. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> but she had to have it under oath. And the Jaders, 
The Jaders had to hear under oath that Jack loves Kate, but alas, she he says no, not anymore, uh, which leads to more speculation. And but. couldn't he have just said no? Did he really have to say not anymore? Yeah, well, that that gives more timeline Jader bait, you know. Right, right. All right. So before the next part of the trial, we come to a new scene here, and Kate's lawyer puts uh, Kate and her mother in a room together to speak privately. So this is Diane. We know Kate's mother. We've seen her several times at this point. Last time we saw her chronologically, not in terms of episode chronology, but the the timeline of the show, uh, she was in a hospital and Kate had gone through great lengths to go see her despite being a, uh, you know, a fugitive. And uh, Diane, who had said that she would scream for help the next time Kate she saw Kate did exactly that. So, you know, this kind of brings up the same old thing again with Kate of having uh, killed her father to protect her mother. Diane says, first of all, she asks if what asks, she asks if what Jack said was true. Uh, Kate doesn't really answer, but Diane says that she doesn't want to testify against Kate, but she wants to meet her grandson as sort of a condition of that, or that's what's implied. But Kate says that she doesn't want Diane anywhere near her son. And that, kind of ends the conversation. Do you think this is just bitterness against her mother and what her mother's done? I mean, I know we've got the big surprise ending, but I don't know why that would necessarily factor in. Yeah, I. it just seems like resentment. It's just resentment, yeah. Right. All right, so well, the next day, I guess, regardless of that conversation, Diane doesn't show up at court. I guess there's quote-unquote medical issues, but for whatever reason, she's not there. So the prosecutor decides that it's time to bargain with Kate they settle on no jail time, 10 years probation, and she can't leave the state. Now, a few years ago, I would have thought that that would be ridiculous for the outcome of a murder. But since then, I've become a little more educated on the justice system and some things that people get away with. And I guess it's reasonably plausible that she might be able to, <laughs> to do that. There's the whole character witness aspect of it. But, uh, you know, she says she's got a son, so she's not going anywhere. But it's kind of an it's kind of a an interesting contrast for the character because of the whole. There's been a theme with Kate that she she can't stay still in one place. She's she's got to run that sort of thing, and so now she's, you know, basically bound to stay in the state of uh, wherever she is. I guess California. Wait, Kate. Kate's been meant to run, but that hasn't been told to us every Kate flashback. Before. Yeah, it's not like there was an episode called "Born to Run" or anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Outside of the courthouse uh, in a parking garage, Kate talks to Jack. He says that he wasn't telling the truth on the stand about not loving her. Groan. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> when she invites him over to her house, he hesitates and she figures out that it's because she doesn't want to, the, the Jack does not want to see the baby. So she basically says, you know, if you want to basically love me, love my kid, you know, if you want to, if you want to see me, you're going to have to accept the baby. And she goes home. And I guess the woman that's there is her nanny. So uh, the nanny leaves and Kate goes upstairs to the baby who's asleep. She wakes him up and gives him a hug. And she says, hi, Aaron, to finish out the episode with our big shock twist ending. I will say, I would not describe it as one of the most shocking episodes in all of Lost. But I think they pulled it off pretty well. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I think so, too, because I think the originally when Jack doesn't want to see the baby, you're thinking he can't stand to see Kate take care of the the, the child that her, that uh, that is Sawyer's, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Um, 
So you're like, oh, okay, so this is all going on. You get to the point of the episode where you realize, okay, well, I don't think Sawyer and her had a baby. I think that's that's on the level. And then you're like, okay, so who's the dad? And then you figure out it's it's Aaron. The First dad song. is some rando from Australia that was only in one Claire flashback. <laughs> I had a hunch when when she walked in the bedroom when I and I saw him, but then when she said it, you're like, ooh, that's that's interesting because obviously something has happened to Claire. She's not going to get rid of Aaron. So that of course opens up a whole bevy of questions about right. what's, what's going on with Claire. Right. It gives more timeline questions. Yeah. And I'm with you that it, it, they, the episode kept you vacillating back and forth of whether this was Sawyer's kid or something else going on. Even when you, when she goes into the room, I mean, little blonde kid, Sawyer has blonde hair. You know, sure. it's possibly that it was still there, but um, you know, uh, the Aaron thing is definitely a, a, uh, a game changer for what's going to happen. I mean, if anything, it should make you worried for what's going to happen to Claire, you know, right. that's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> so uh, did you like this episode? I did. I thought, and you know, anytime there's a flash with Kate, you approach cautiously. Yeah. <laughs> Not the greatest track record, but I like this a lot. I think this approach, the, the idea for coming, de- you know, dealing with her past head on in the, in the criminal justice system. But then of course you hear the lies that Jack is telling and that raises an eyebrow. Then you realize she has the mother of Aaron now, and that raises even your, your second eyebrow. Yeah. So I think it does a great job of her tackling these issues head on, uh, like a woman, you know, not trying to run for them at this point. And so it shows growth in Kate and it adds a whole bunch of new layers onto to the story itself. So I thought the, the flashback was well executed and the main story stuff did a good job of carrying on what what it was uh, from last episode and actually did a really good job of drawing the line in the sand of, of where Kate and Sawyer are uh, in, in terms of their relationship. I guess for me, the relationship stuff was spread out enough with other things that it never felt too overpowering it informed some of the other stuff that was going on. So it wasn't just the back and forth between Kate and Sawyer and Jack on the island that we're used to, but it was, okay, as a result of all this stuff, who's the kid's dad? So it informed the mystery, which usually it's just its own thing that sort of just gets in the way of the things that you really care about when you watch Lost, unless you're a jader or a skater. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So I enjoyed it too. I thought it was a real good episode. I would even say it was better than The Economist, honestly. I agree um, with you. Now, to your question from the beginning, the name of the episode, Eggtown, weirdest name ever. So there are a couple of possibilities of what this could mean. (laughs) I searched the internet. I could find very little. I found one blog that I can't, I could not even figure out the person's name. Like they don't have their name on the blog anywhere, but it's like an old thing from 2009 where they did Lost reviews, season or yeah, episode reviews of Lost. According to this person, this completely anonymous internet person (laughs) says that Eggtown refers to the Great Depression when people who had very little money would travel and barter in the Dust Bowl throughout the Midwest. One of the lowest value things that you could trade was an egg because they were perishable and lots of people had chickens. So a town where people had very little of value to trade would be called an Eggtown. That sounds perfectly believable to me. It could be complete and utter bullshit <laughs> because I have no idea whether the, the source is – but I could literally, Kevin, find nothing else because everything I, – I tried separating egg and town into two words and searching that. 
if you Google Eggtown, all that comes up is let references to the lost episode. So it is the weirdest phenomenon. I, I don't know how to explain it. Other than that is one explanation that's been thrown out to the universe, but I have no credible backing for it. There is actually something on the, the Lost PD website that I guess came from the Lost podcast about it. Really? Yeah, from Carlton Cuse. But I missed this. Okay. Yeah. He said, really, we could spend a lot of time talking about the titles that don't make sense, but the title Eggtown referred to the fact that Locke fixed a couple of eggs for Ben at the beginning of the episode. And then there's also the episode had a lot to do with Kate's pregnancy and pregnancy involves eggs. And so that was the other kind of sort of metaphoric significance of the title Eggtown. Which is incredibly disappointing, more so than what you found. I was going to say, I like I like the one I found better. <laughs> Even if uh, it's complete No, Locke made some eggs, whatever. Right, right. Even if it's complete bullshit, I, I actually kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> so choose your own reality, as they seem to be doing in politics these days. Uh, um, that's right. <laughs> now, now it's up. Something that's interesting that I also read about this episode is this is, you said days 93 and 94 on the island, yeah. right? Yeah. And I believe day 94 on the island is Christmas Eve, really? which is only significant because of what happens in episode five. But I figure right. it's worth pointing that out here. That is worth pointing out. Yep. A couple other notes for this episode. We see the return of backgammon. Locks a sucker for games. And so when, uh, when Sawyer comes over to his house to distract him, of course, he brings backgammon. Been gone from the show for a while, but if you'll remember, it first appeared way back in the pilot. When uh, Locke was looking at it and Walt came over and he said, uh, there's two players, two sides. One is light, one is dark, and it's the oldest game in the world. We've seen quite a few games in these two episodes. We also have golf, uh, just kind of that that continuing theme. But that's that's about all I got before we move on to our superlatives and stuff. Anything else you wanted to say? No, sir. What was your quote of the episode? I had another exchange. It was with Ben and Miles where Ben says, You've arranged this meeting so you could blackmail me? And Miles says, well, it's extortion if you want to get technical. <laughs> that is a good one. <laughs> Even in this this heated kind of argument, this tense situation, Miles just can't help himself. But Milesism, yep. Mine's a lot, quote, where he says, uh, if this were a dictatorship, I would just shoot you and go about my day. Dinner's at six if you're hungry. <laughs> Love it. Uh, what about your favorite moment of the episode? Uh, I said it was Jack's testimony in the courtroom just because it did set off those alarms and, and sort of made you sit up in your chair a little bit. Yeah, it definitely sets the stage for a lot of stuff to come too, for sure. Mine was the lock and the grenade scene where yes. he, I said lock giving Miles his breakfast because he specifically says, my name is John Locke and I'm responsible for the well-being of this island. I think that's also that shows a lot of where Locke's head's at right now, too. Like he has fully embraced this idea that he is like either a chosen one or the chosen one to defend the island. And then he uh, puts the grenade in his mouth and he says, enjoy your breakfast. Well, hell, I mean, even that's what the others thought of Locke, too. Yeah, I mean, he's not it's not an isolated opinion, that's for sure. So. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's pure ego there because it's he's hearing people outside of himself saying stuff like that. So, what about do you have an asshole idiot for this episode? I gave it to Locke, but I don't know that I'm super confident in that pick. I guess it's just his. I think it's not just so much his demeanor and the way he sort of being the dictator of the the barracks, as as Kate put it, but the fact that Ben still gets to him. It's definitely something where you're like, man, Vlock, I just wish you were past this at this point. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I gave it to him for that same reason. So we, we got to double up there because he is still so easily manipulated after this all this time. It's really disappointing because the thing is, is that he does a couple of cool, badass things in this episode, too. And like he'll exude confidence at one point and then seem complete. But it's like a veil that, that becomes really obvious in another scene. You know, so right. it, it goes back and forth like that. Well, even in the beginning scene where, you know, he breaks the breakfast tray and stuff. I'm like, could you not wait to be far enough away from Ben? So at least he didn't hear you. Yeah. Before you, least, you before you reveal how manipulated right. you were. Could you at least keep up the appearance that this isn't working a little yeah. bit longer? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he we, we agree on that one. All right. Numbers. So this is one I would not have caught myself, except that. Every time you hear numbers said out loud, you should probably listen. But Kate's trial number is 42, 23, 1, 8, 15. So the, you could either look at 8, 15, or you could look at just the 15. But one way or another, there's a whole bunch of numbers in there. Yeah, and that's the only number in the whole episode. Sawyer nicknames. I have uh, that he called Miles Bruce Lee from the freighter. And that he called Hurley Montezuma. Yeah, that's those are the only two I remember. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know who Montezuma was. I I know of Montezuma's revenge. Right. I don't know about the actual Montezuma. Yeah, something to do with it. But all right. So for music and books, now we've got uh, a pretty significant things to dig into with this. First of all, there's one track on the season four soundtrack. It's called Backgammon Gambit. Uh, this one did not really strike me as anything special. It's more just, it's just kind of your usual suspense music when uh, um, they're running to, when they figure out what, or when Locke figures out what Kate's up to and they're running to catch up with them and everything. It's as Kate and Miles break into Locke's house and, and all that stuff. So that's not really anything that stands out in terms of being a unique sounding track. But in terms of incidental music, we've got Xanadu, which is, I guess, actually a video that Hurley's playing on the television, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, actually, according to uh, the notes here on Lostpedia, they said that in the advertisement for this episode, they were playing a clip from a show called Satan's Doom, and then they replaced it with the music from San- Xanadu later. So for whatever reason, but Xanadu, for those who don't know, is a 1980 musical that was critically panned starring Olivia Newton-John, who was hot off the heels of Grease at the time, and she was an extremely popular pop music star. Xanadu was a failure as a movie, but the soundtrack was a huge hit, probably because of Olivia Newton-John's popularity at the time. But um, it's about a supernatural muse who inspires a man to start a nightclub called Xanadu. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, then check out Xanadu. Um, but uh, And then there's a song called She's Got You. We get another Patsy Cline song because, of course, it's a Kate episode. So my I complained last time that they were using the same Patsy Cline songs over and over again, but thankfully we get a new one here. This is a song about a woman who has a picture and many other possessions of a man that she loves, but the man that she loves is with another woman. So you got your own triangle within the love triangle uh, within the Patsy Cline song. Now for books, we have a big one, which is Valis by Philip K. Dick. Now if that name sounds familiar to you, uh, Philip K. Dick is the author of a number of critically acclaimed and uh, iconic and classic uh, science fiction stories. 
a couple you might be familiar with because they've been turned into movies. Minority Report is one. And then another one is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the book name of what was what became Blade Runner. I guess they decided that was a little bit of a silly name for a movie, um, but they, but but Blade so Runner they named it Blade Runner, <laughs> which doesn't really. Have you seen Blade Runner? You know what's funny is I haven't, but I just bought the Blu-ray for five bucks. That's funny. The term Blade Runner in the movie does not make any sense. So yeah, you're right. I think they just thought it sounded cool. The book involves a spiritual search by a man named, get this, Horse Lover Fat who believes that his visions are guiding him to a religious revelation. He finds a girl named Sophia, who he believes is a deity of some kind. She's killed, but sh- but he continues his religious journey, looking for the next reincarnation of this wisdom. And the book also leaves open the possibility that the protagonist is hallucinating all of this or is an insane schizophrenic. So I pieced that. That's those are my own words. I pieced them together after reading a few different summaries online to try to get a, a, an idea what this book is about. It sounds pretty crazy, but it also follows in line with some of the other books that we've talked about for Lost, which is uh, like one like The Third Policeman, which just has to do with the protagonist like questioning reality or that reality might not be the way it's presented. Um, so that sort of seems to be a, a a common through line for some books that are seen on Lost. That's the book that Locke brings Ben from his own library uh, to read to pass the time. And then we have another book called The Invention of Morel, which is uh, Sawyer was reading that book. So, so Sawyer in the Barracks now has a new library of books to read by the Argentine writer Adolfo Bioy Cazares. The gist of this one is there's a fugitive hiding on a deserted island somewhere in Polynesia. He meets people on the island, including a woman that he falls in love with, but they turn out to not be real, but rather the recordings of an elaborate machine, and the people are actually all dead. Now, this, of course, is very similar to a theory that was common among fans uh, of Lost, that the characters are all dead. Kevin, I think that sometimes these book choices are very deliberate to sort of mess with the heads of fans who spend enough time to delve into the books and 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 what they're about. To, to throw something like that on there is kind of like stoking the flames of that particular fan theory. Well, I'll tell you what, if I was a writer of the show, that is absolutely what I would do, is I would troll the fans as hard as I could with little things like this. <laughs> I'm, I would be on board with that 100%. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I, I've read uh, a couple of books by Philip K. Dick, not this one. He deserves uh, all the credit in the world for being, um, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, up there with uh, Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury as one of the all-time science fiction greats. So check it out. And that's all I've got. Two good episodes to follow up on the first two episodes of the season, although I think those are much more meaty and uh, very strong. However... Next week's a pretty big one because we're going to be talking about The Constant, which is almost universally agreed upon to be one of, if not the best, lost episode of all time. Do we agree? Only one way to find out. Got to listen next week. That's right. But in the meantime, you could follow me on Twitter at KFord13. You can also follow the show on Twitter at LostPod. Let us know what you think of the show. New episodes come out every single Monday, and you can email us. Any correspondence is longer than 280 characters, or if you don't have Twitter, at lostpodquestions at gmail.com. And you can also check out all of the other great podcasts on our network at Enter the Real World. 
com, especially the Countdown to Destruction podcast, which talks about the show. The Leftover is another another Damon Lindelof project, if you want to check that out. So, And all the other podcasts that are over there. So for Ben, this is Kevin. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you then.